Uh, because play is so important for me because it's just my favorite way of resting apart from sleeping it's got to be a thing where not only the audience are being rested I as the organizer have to feel have to chill the hell out I and my friends who I ask to do this work sometimes for free for me they have got to like be the most relaxed and the least stressed is the least I can offer them if I'm if I can't pay them like and if they're not and I'm not resting, there is no point in me trying to get a group of strangers to rest because, you know, that's great. And I want that. But it's, it's just got to correlate where everyone's feeling rested, at least as much as possible. Welcome to the Pleasurable Ecologies Formations of Care podcast. Presented by yours truly, artist, writer, and pleasure activist Emma Josephine Budge as part of my curatorial research fellowship with Ava International and Frame Contemporary Art Finland. Join us over the next six months for a series of intimate conversations with artists and activists across Ireland, Finland, and the UK, exploring themes of pleasure, care, and rest at the intersections of art, activism, and ecology within these trans-oceanic localities. Each episode works to become, in and of itself, a potential site for recuperation, reflection, and healing. Wherever you are in the world, I invite you to place your feet, wheels, or crutches on the ground and take a deep breath in as we begin. So on this beautiful pink skied evening, we're joined by Irish journalist, commentator, Gwail Goa, creator and broadcaster, Ola Medjakodunmi, and Osara, founder of Fry Plantains Collective, a community development project which aims to organize LGBT feminist and African related social events in Dublin. I'm really, really grateful that you're both joining me. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Emma. Thank you. So we'll just begin with a little introduction. I'd love to hear a little bit about your creative practice, uh, where you're based, what you get up to. And uh, if you could also start off by giving an image description of yourselves for the listeners. In fact, I will start with my own image description. So my name is Amma. I use she, her pronouns. And I'm a light-skinned, black, thick, female presenting person with a large fluffy afro cat eye glasses and a kind of burnt orange blazer and behind me are white walls covered in far too much art and some plants and a white and copper ceiling lamp and Ola I'll pass over to you first if you can give us your image description and an introduction. Hi so um, my name is Ola Majekodumi. I'm a black woman I'm tall and I'm dark skinned and I'm here in my room. So I have a purple lantern and I have some art behind me as well. Big calendar, some books on the table. And yeah, I'm feeling comfortable. My name is Osara. I look like copper. I have gold drop earrings on. I'm wearing a brown bra to go with my yellow plaid punk dress. My background is white as hell. And I have some lampshades thrown on my face so you can see me at the Zoom. And yeah, that's it. 
Beautiful. Thank you. Ola, we'll come back to you. It would be great to just hear a little bit about the many different things that you do across your creative practice, um, where you're based and how that informs your work. Yeah, so I'm based here in Dublin. I've lived in Dublin my whole life, really. So I moved here when I was seven months old with my family. And I specialize, I suppose, in media work. And I am an artist too. And that's something that I've only really begun to kind of evolve as. But yeah, I suppose my passion has always been like broadcasting, journalism, and mainly work in the Irish language medium as well. So I'm a Gwelgore and I'm a Black Gwelgore. And yeah, I suppose I like to kind of work or draw things that, you know, people might not really think of much. So for example, I did a video documentary, What Does Irishness Look Like? back in 2018. And that went viral and that really got people thinking about like, what does Irishness actually really look like today? And that you don't have to be white to be Irish. So that's another thing that like people like myself that we kind of have to deal with a lot, you know, getting that question, where are you really from? So it, it can make you kind of feel like, where do we belong? So I would describe myself as Black Irish, Nigerian Irish, Afro Irish, you know. But I suppose people in Ireland are kind of only really getting used to those terms now. And, you know, if people see you as like, I don't know, a grown black woman, they kind of assume that you just moved here. Whereas like in my case, anyway, I've lived here my whole life. So it does really feel like sometimes like, where do I belong or something like that. But um, no, I think I'm proud of my identity. I think the black Irish community is really grown and it's beautiful to see. And yeah, I love to kind of have these intersections in my writing as well. So I have a column with nos.ie, which is like an Irish language magazine in Belfast. And I have a monthly column about like the African Irish community. As well as that, I have my own show on Rajin Lipa called Afro Era, which looks at like African Irish music, as well as music from the continent of Africa too. And yeah, I recently started a music show on RT2XM as well called Unheard. And I'm looking at kind of indie rock music of Black and Gaelic artists as well. So maybe artists that aren't maybe regularly played on RTE. So I like to kind of shine a light on those kind of artists. And yeah, I suppose, like I was saying, I like to do something different with my work and yeah, make it playful and fun. Mm, thank you so much for that. I continue to just be kind of really awed by like the depth and plethora of your practice. Um, and I, I love the way that you are representing such a multitudinous texture of blackness in Ireland. It's really, it's really exciting and inspiring. Um, Asara, we'll come over to you. So can you talk a bit about uh, what you do, your creative practice and how that informs um, your various creative practices? Well, I can tell you my favorite things I've been enjoying doing the last few years. Yes, One please focus on your favorite things that is on brand. We love that. Awesome. I At the moment, I'm in Paris for a performance artist residency where I get to just explore being a singer in my own dojo. So that's going pretty well. I get to have a space that's not my room singing and annoy my neighbours. So it's been a win-win for everyone involved. I am 
currently I'm working with this new friend of mine, Nico. We're going to collaborate to make a music soundscape based on the works of Joyce's Ulysses, because this is the 100 years since the book was published. Uh, previously, before I was in Paris, I have been enjoying playing games. My favorite game to play is a role-playing game, yeah? It's called Werewolves. It's a really cool psychological game where you get to, you know, someone in the group is a werewolf and the rest are villagers. we got to figure out who's who and kill them off. And you use manipulation and gossip and rumors and or whatever your actual personality is or lies to fish out the werewolves. When each person buys a ticket, they're given a secret role. So as the coordinator, I already know who everyone is, but no one else in the theater knows who people are. So it's great to see how people, based on their own natural personality and the secret character, how they actually move around the world in this world we create. Really fun. Uh, usually as well, uh, when I started Five Plantains Collective, it was originally somewhere I just wanted to hear and see some Black spoken word artists do their thing on the mic. The most successful event I've run with my friends under Five Plantains has been Black Jam. Black Jam is a Irish Black punk music gig where I would invite English and Irish Black and white artists to come perform in different venues over the years, including Fibbers, uh, the reception area of Abbey Theatre, as well as the complex before it disappeared. Uh, I've loved it. It's, it was a great way to hone in organization skills and challenge myself with the amount of insane deadlines, as well as just trying to not like, you know, crumble under stress. And then when it all finally comes together, how beautiful it is to see all these different people who were either interested in the black punk bands or the Irish trad punk bands coming together and dancing or getting drunk or staying sober and eating a bag of chips while watching the show. Loads of people uh, dancing, uh, stomping their feet. Uh, it was a really nice way to merge uh, the Af a bit of the African scene with some of the rap scene, with a bit of the punk scene, with just the scene of people who just wanted to come and check out what the show was like. And I'm th I'm I'm looking forward to putting it on again, if not this year, next year. That's me. Thank you so much. Um, so speaking of insane deadlines and crumbling under the pressure, a part of what I kind of like to focus on in this podcast series is looking beneath the veil of burnout, um, particularly as Black people conditioned female, as Black queer folk, as Black femmes, we are constantly running on an empty capacity or running on empty and yet we continue to make the work we continue to be here we continue to produce we continue to collaborate um, we continue to hold many other artists and collectives and audiences and communities despite the fact that we are consistently running on empty and a part of what I've been doing over the last few years is trying to envision a different kind of art world a different kind of creative industry where that wasn't normalized where that wasn't just oh but that's what we do for the art but now I'm working towards something else I'm working towards something sustainable and my kind of hunt for these alternative ways of working has really been fueled and spurred on by the 
um, kind of premature withdrawing of many of our elders from the creative industries due to illness, due to passing away, due to not being overloaded and just withdrawing completely. And the fact that there are kind of so few of us or so few of us who have elders over 50 in our various industries, um, not that, of course, they haven't been there. Um, and we all have amazing legacies of Black people in our disciplines um, from 30, 40, and 50 years ago, but many of whom are no longer present. And what does that mean? And why they're no longer present? And how do we make sure that we are present in 30 years? What does that kind of look like as, as a model for organizing? So I'd love to hear a little bit more about uh, your relationship to care, rest, and recuperation. And you might want to talk about this as a political practice, but you might just want to talk about this as a holistic practice in your life. Um, and Ola, I want to come to you first because you began just before we came online by saying that you do not know how to rest. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come with you if you can just talk a bit more about that. Yeah, so I feel like balancing like full time work with freelance is really hard because you do still want to do your like, you know, creative stuff at the side as well, as well as like your main job so at the moment I'm researching for tv and like as much as that's great and like you know it's media related and everything you know I still want to have time to be an artist to like write or to yeah just do creative stuff you know whether that's poetry whether that's you know broadcasting my show whatever it is so yeah like it's really hard to balance everything all the time and then like you kind of feel like oh you know if I don't take all my freelance gigs at the side you know they might go so there's this kind of like you're having this competition in your head almost like which one is more important which one I should do that kind of thing so it can be really like it's like a tug of war really inside your head with your body as well like because you're battling whether I should rest or whether I should take on more work and then I find most weekends now I just want to rest. Like before I would do a good bit of work, but now I just want to rest. Like I just don't have the energy. And also like I'm learning to say no as well to stuff a lot more because some things are just not worth my time, to be honest. Like even if they sound like interesting projects, it's just not for me. Like it's not everything that people offer you that's for you anyway. So you need to know yourself what's, what works for you, what is for you. Especially like, you know, if there's no payment as well, sometimes it's like, what's the point then? But it really depends because if it's really good, kind of promising project, I will do it. So, yeah, it's, it can be difficult, like choosing what works and what doesn't work for you. And like, you know, I'm still figuring it out. You know, I don't have everything figured out. Like I'm only 25. So, yeah, I'm still still figuring it out in my head. But like, I think enough people don't talk about it enough in the arts about like kind of burnout and finding that care and as well especially when I was like doing like kind of more freelance journalism like I found that kind of difficult in the sense like where's my base like who can I talk to about this like how to balance work it's it's a hard one it's a hard one as an artist especially like knowing when to have a break a hundred percent I mean, you brought up so many important points there around scarcity thinking and a fear of um, the work drying up, but also the importance of saying no. Um, 
saying no is a practice. I like to think about it. Like it's no being a muscle that one has to exercise that you have to kind of say it and then think about how you said it and then find out how to say it more regularly. And also that really important tie to money. I, I often feel like despite being an anti-capitalist, I talk a lot about money. Um, but for me, this thing around pleasure and care and rest and recuperation is so economic. And I'm I'm really... The, like advocating for black people, black artists, black queer artists and black women to get paid has become like 30% of my life <laughs> actually over the past few years. I'm really like a kind of ball buster with it. And there is no excuse for anybody who has funding not to pay us, uh, not to pay us properly. And that needs to be taken. That needs to be, you know, relating to where you live and housing costs, but that also needs to be in relation to all the years of like experience that you're bringing. And I often feel like in my practice, I'm not just bringing the two years that I took to do my master's in cultural studies. I'm bringing like all the conversations that I have around the dinner table every night. I'm bringing like the dreams that I have because I don't switch off. I'm bringing like the conversations I'm having on my one day off that are still about climate change. <laughs> you know, like I'm, I'm bringing a, such a richness of practice and experience that are not confined to a nine to five. And, and, and I think the pay also has to reflect that has to reflect the fact that you are bringing your whole self to this work because it's not just work right it's also a part of our lives and who we are um so I'm going to come to you in terms of your relationship to rest and care and we've already heard how play is such a beautiful part of your practice but but what about rest and care and I'd love to also hear about how you think of this as an individual but also how you navigate this as a collective because in the collectives that I've been in Resting care can become really difficult to manage collectively. Again, the ideology versus the practice, there can be quite a lot of discrepancy there. So I'd love to hear a bit more on how you're thinking about that and navigating that. It's really interesting The I was saying there for this other, I was in the talk last Sunday that my friend Karen runs called Origins Elu, and we were chatting about when you collaborate with organizations or institutions or you're under a commission or whatever because it's still you're you know it's a relationship you do give and take whether it's working or personal but at the end of the day what kind of values are you as an artist or organizer are you willing to compromise on and which values are you absolutely adamant to stick into so that you can always remain grounded and focused um and I think a lot of at least with me when I put do organize work and stuff not off to anything but I think part of what gets me real stressed is my values are challenged whenever it comes to a deadline and especially when my values are based on playing and wanting myself and you know the people who come to enjoy the show are just as relaxed in fact it's usually the case which is also a sign of a good show where the more relaxed and awesome the show is the probably the amount of breakdowns the organizers have had over the weeks making it or something. And in terms of in terms of the collective, I think it's what I think needs to work for me or make sense for me now is um, reviewing what worked and what doesn't whenever I put on an event like Black Jam or a, a table quiz or something like that. And having that form whatever ethos is that the word I'm looking for whatever values I 
I think I had. And then when I actually put into practice what actually happens in real life when I try to organize something, either those values weren't met or, you know, or they were born in a completely different circumstance. Um, basically, I don't want to say five plantations, A, B, C, and D. And then now I actually don't care about any of those things that five plantations collective, for example, said. We will, I would, you know, I slash we, me, my friends will do. Uh, because play and blah 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 is so important for me because it's just my favorite way of resting apart from sleeping it's got to be a thing where not only the audience are being rested I as the organizer have to feel have to chill the hell out I and my friends who I ask to do this work sometimes for free for me they have got to like be the most relaxed and the least stressed is the least I can offer them if I'm if I can't pay them like and if they're not and I'm not resting, there is no point in me trying to get a group of strangers to rest because, you know, that's great. And I want that. But it's, it's just got to correlate where everyone's feeling rested, at least as much as possible. Even the sound meditation I do when, I, when it comes to the music, for me, I just want to just relax and rest and encourage that in people. And that does mean I have to learn to say no, because that immediately alleviates like magic a lot of what uh, would have given me a lot of pressure, especially with like over the lockdown with COVID of two years and not being able to put on a lot of events. So, you know, just even the event aside, just what are my values actually? <laughs> and even the whole rest and play, I never actually saw that as a value, probably because I think the word value is more equated with like, honor and loyalty and I don't know so I didn't think like oh is play can play be a value sure I'll take it at least I have one value left you know um so yeah when it comes to me with resting I just try to say no to things only because I want to be the best version of myself when I am able to say yes to certain things it also means I become exclusive if I'm around for everyone I become a doormat and everyone has a doormat but nobody has the prize and I'm the prize I just have to start seeing myself like that or I'm the one who spites myself being wrecked and angry and bitter with everyone that's not fair on me that's not fair on people who just want to get to come to events or work with me or play with me you know so in the long run saying no to things politely is so good for the health uh the other thing for me is exercise really i know it's been a form of meditation for me and it's again what have we missed during covid it's something that you and your friends in the first podcast were talking about like the, you couldn't dance when you had COVID time, you couldn't move. And human beings are literally agile human beings. So to just have a fun thing like sports day, let's all move around and get those endorphins out. Endorphins, it just removes a lot of stress and increases that happiness in you. I'm sure something to do with the amygdala somewhere in your earlobe. So I'm sure someone who knows all those um, facts who can uh, say it in a more eloquent way. But um yeah, rest for me includes exercise and saying no. Also, I think that this this the permission to withdraw from, you know, quote unquote, the community or to take time for oneself with smaller groups, with best friends, with partners, with family members, chosen family, like 
that kind of permission to withdraw and still be contributing in a different way to 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 the community I think is also really important it's really important to validate rest as a mode of activism and I think this is something that we've also learned like just huge juicy grateful amounts um from the disability justice community and their activism and their writing and insistence on not just accessibility but redefining what what activism and and political movements can look like and who they're for so I, I I'm just so kind of moved and inspired by what you're both sharing and I have to say that even pre covid I did not have the kind of play practice so sorry that you are describing <laughs> um but I think I think I really love all the different kind of things that you've both pulled into this idea of rest and care and play. And one of the things that I love about this question is it's so amorphous and it's subjective, but it's also expansive and permissive. And it allows, um, it kind of is a one of those a rare, the rare dish that actually tastes better for the more stuff that's put in it. You know, so I think it's I really like to encourage that kind of collective bubbling pot of permission for what rest care and recuperation looks like for you. And that being enough, that being just what it needs to be. Um, I'm also kind of interested because my thinking around rest and care has developed in conversation with uh, other particularly black artists and curators and facilitators and arts programmers in my community across the UK, Ghana and the US. So it's very much been an in-conversation development and of course literature. I mean, you know, returning to Audrey Lord, Luces of the Erotic is Power. Um, Adrian Marie Brown's work has been really influential for me, Joan Morgan's work. But there's also a kind of ephemeral conversation happening in the UK. There is a, a kind of dissemination of this conversation, but it's really different in each place. So I'd love to hear whether or not you feel that you're having these thoughts kind of in isolation or in very small groups, or is this something that's being spoken about in the creative industries in Ireland? Like we need to start thinking about rest and care. We need to start taking care of our artists. Um, This is now the new standard of what's being expected at an institutional level or a kind of facilitatory organizational level, or does that feel really far away from where things are in the spaces that you both occupy? Yeah, so like uh, Sarah was saying there about like, you know, during the pandemic, I think a lot of people were just more real, to be honest, especially on social media. Like for me, social media can be so toxic, to be honest, like just everyone pretending they have perfect lives and it it can get to you mentally, like obviously, because like, what the hell? No one's being real. Absolutely. I'm like, I'm here like like snapping for you. (laughs) So I think during the pandemic, it was actually really kind of like peaceful in a sense online because everyone was just really being real about how shit everything was. Like, and like, I kind of liked that just, you know, that was okay to not be okay. But yeah, I feel like people were sharing a lot more quotes and things about like, you know, resting and not taking on too much work. Actually, Emma Dabbery would usually kind of share stuff like this as well on her page. So like you saw a bit more of that uh, during the pandemic and stuff people were just more real but I feel on the grand scheme of things people aren't honest enough about it especially after the pandemic as well because I think that's a lot harder you know going back into reality in a way 
it's just more pressure. I feel like anxious a lot of the time as well, like being around people, being around big groups. So yeah, it's just like, I don't get like why no one's really being realistic about this whole thing. Like even for me, I was out like on a TV set a few weeks ago and this was like in the North and it was just being surrounded by like people you didn't really know well or being in a place that you didn't know was a loss after COVID, especially when I spent most of my time in my bedroom, like in front of a screen, like doing my work that way. And like people just don't really talk about that enough. Like, why are we expected like robots to just go back to normality when we've been kept inside for two years? Like, that's not normal. So it's a real thing, like this feeling of just trying to find your steps again after COVID. It's just really weird. And yeah. I suppose in an artistic space, though, you feel like people aren't that judgmental as well. So you kind of feel more relaxed when you meet people. But like, I don't know, day to day kind of life, it's more of a challenge, I think, sometimes. So when you say in artistic spaces, people are more relaxed, do you mean there's more leniency and more understanding that you're experiencing from kind of uh artistic organizations or people in kind of positions of maybe maybe not yeah maybe not artistic organizations but like individuals themselves I think are more understanding Mm. because you know as an artist there's a challenge to that anyway like that kind of work that you're kind of more open-minded about certain things and you can just you can be yourself around other artists there isn't that kind of rush of capitalism I think in the arts really where where you see in other sectors so there is that difference definitely that is a controversial assertion that there is not the rush of capitalism in the arts. <laughs> I mean, That'd be a big generalization. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, no, I mean, I think that's what I thought the arts was going to be like when I was like a kid and I was like, I'm going to be an artist and it's going to be like, you know, I had like the first time I went to Berlin and I was like in the, you know, in a bar and everyone was just chilling out and smoking and drinking and talking about photography and feminist books. And I was like, yeah, this is my stereotype of what Berlin was going to be like and what an artist was going to be like. And then I was like, oh no, it's just capitalism. <laughs> I love that that yeah. is not your experience of being in the art. I think it really depends though. Like some people can be real kind of like pushy about deadlines and that sort of thing. So it really depends. I find that mostly when I haven't actually met people in person, when it's just over emails, I feel like I don't get a great sense of them. But like when it's in person, you know, you get a better sense, especially after COVID, like how people are, like how chill they can be and that kind of thing. So I think it does really depend. Yeah, 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 100%. Sarah, is there anything you'd like to add or come in here on? Uh, Yeah, just the... Like many other people, I am learning how to do general social cues stuff that would have been easier before COVID. So it's a it's a fun challenge to relearn those things and oh, how to learn them in a city that actually has the means to like there's loads of people around. There's loads of different museums, cafes, shops, black shops, white shops, Indian shops. There's a there's a there's just a way where I get to feel like essential adults again that I have badly missed in Dublin. 
having not lived in Dublin, I, I can't I can't speak to that. But I did want to kind of ask about being in the city versus not being in the city. A big part of my rest and recuperation is linked to being in green spaces and being in places where I feel I'm kind of de quote unquote urbanized. Um, and and that's a weird thing in England because if you know the mo- the greener the space, the whiter the space. Mm. Um, and I would imagine. Oh, actually, I, I'm imagining, but I have no idea. I'm, I'm imagining that Ireland is the same. But yeah, yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> um, but because <laughs> it's actually, I mean, it's not the same everywhere. But um, so there's always this really intense compromise for me. Unless I'm going like to the middle of nowhere, like, you know, if I get like a, I don't know, some friends, if we decide to like get a house in the middle of nowhere, then that's kind of great. It's a little bit utopic. But if as soon as you're in a town or you're in a village, you're having to contend with not just kind of looks, but ignorance and potential hostility and racism, et cetera, et cetera. And it's the, you know, it's the unknown, right? I really relate a lot to what you said about going to a new place and how it's become even harder after COVID. I think there's something about like my streetwise that has become dulled. I feel like I've lo- I've lost some of my streetwise. I mean, I've really traveled and done some crazy shit that like I would not recommend <laughs> that people did, you know, and I felt like I could kind of be anywhere not necessarily safely but you know I could I could navigate the streets of many different cities in many different places and I feel like I've really lost some of that so I I really relate to that kind of post-covid social anxiety but it has been really necessary for me to escape the city in order to feel that I can rest and recuperate and I think that's also connected to my kind of work around climate change and climate justice work and Climate just futures feel often for me quite unattainable when I am fixed within a city space. I find it very difficult to to imagine otherwise um, with non-human life or more than human life. Even though I'm lucky enough to live, you know, in a place that's surrounded by a number of trees, I always say that I really like living somewhere where the trees are still taller than the houses, which is not the case in most of London. Um, But I'd love to kind of hear a little bit about your relationship to ecology and whether or not that informs your relationship to resting, care and pleasure, or if it doesn't. Yeah, I suppose, like, for me, I've lived around kind of like the city my whole life. Yeah, like, to be honest, like you were saying there, I'm uh, like, you know, the greener the spaces, the wider the spaces. So sometimes I do feel a little bit uncomfortable going to countrysides. And like where I was working actually a few weeks ago was actually very, very country, like literally in the middle of nowhere. We were working in like a pub restaurant. And yeah, it was very white. And, you know, that's part of the reason I felt such social anxiety because I was in the middle of nowhere with people I don't really know. So it was a lot coming at once, like after COVID. And yeah, just generally as well, I suppose. Yeah, like I always say to myself, like in Ireland anyway, like the only places I would live is like Dublin, Cork City and Belfast maybe and Galway actually as well. So like the cities really. And like where there are like big black populations as well. Not so much in Belfast though. But yeah, I suppose... Yeah, like it's just more comfortable, and like like you were saying, Anna as well. Like people in the countryside kind of tend to maybe have more conservative views or maybe backward views. 
times so you don't really want to be there as a minority that much but that's not to say that like there aren't like people of color there or you know living there so you know I do think things are kind of changing as well in those spaces and yeah I suppose like for me for resting like I can do that anywhere you know sometimes I like me and my boyfriend like to go to Dublin City like in the heart of Dublin City and go to like this apartment hotel there and rest for a few days yeah like Dublin is my jam really to be honest um like in the heart of Dublin especially and yeah like I don't think for me necessarily means I need to be like in quiet spaces like in the middle of nowhere to kind of recuperate it's just it can be kind of just easier I don't I don't want that to sound lazy or whatever but like it could just be easier being in the city you know you can just get to everything you need and you have everything you need because I remember being in one part of Ireland at one point because I had to like go on set and act for something and it was really in the middle of nowhere like it was a well tucked and meaning as well it was very white so I just remember thinking to myself I couldn't live here like I couldn't like no disrespect to the people that live there but <laughs> I would be depressed if I lived there I'm sorry <laughs> I would die if I lived here no offense lads no offense <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it's also I mean it's like access is a real thing you know in terms of so I have white family and my white family all live in the country so I grew up going back and forth that I was that little black girl like in the family picture with all the white people in the pub you know and and occasionally my dad <laughs> and and so I think I, I there's definitely a relationship to to kind of privilege and access in terms of being able to go be able to go and, and being able to like read those social cues um depending on where you are because England whiteness is also very varied um there are certain social cues that I can read depending on where we are but yeah I just I want to acknowledge that I know that access and privilege is also a part of going into green spaces um when you're black in Europe yeah, I think across Europe, I think that going to like green or countryside spaces can be about access and privilege. You need to have transport, you need to have somewhere to be, you need to know the ideally like know where you're going or go somewhere where that's, you know, enclosed. I think being able to just go off somewhere into like the hills or the mountains is not is not an option for all, all black people or does not feel like a safe or possible or accessible option. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if it's something you really want to do at the end of the day, you will find a way to to figure it out. So I say because I, I do like the country, but I'm not like um, I'm not mad on going there, though. I do really enjoy my time when I am there. It's definitely uncomfortable sometimes where I get real. I'm already a real shy person. So being somewhere where I have to be the only black this and all uh, it, it is what it is. Um, so that's also part of why. I wouldn't be the first to go. I also can't drive yet. Mm. But I do go if like a group of friends are going. I, that's actually the only way I ever go. I'm like, okay, cool. So-and-so is going. Let's go do a road trip. Let's take a bus trip. Let's cycle there. Awesome. Um, but at the end of the day, if I did really, really want to be there, I think I will find a way, to be honest. I just, I'm not a huge country person. Because it's just, I want to be anonymous. I like to feel anonymous, you know. I don't want to be the champion of all these certain kinikon, kinikon rights. I just want to, like, read a goddamn book in a city and move on my life. So if I'm in the countryside, 
we would really like to actually, I, I mean, to go to countryside actually, maybe this summertime, great. But that's why I like the city. I can just, you know, especially, it's interesting, Paris as well. Both London and Paris are multicultural, but Paris is way more mixed. Like in London, I felt the stark difference that over there is where the black people hang out and over there is where the white people and white shops are while here it's a huge mix of like literally different senegalese mali people benin people kotova people you got white french people over here you got your algerian people over here you got some moroccans there's a huge mix that i'm just like wow i actually thought it would be london that would be the more mixed but um, anyway it just means that being in paris i feel more anonymous to just be and i think that's just right now when I want to rest, I want to be anonymous when I'm resting. I don't want to be championing no goddamn rights when I just want to read a book or take a swim. Uh, so right now, the countryside is for me if I go with friends in the summertime. But while it's like March, I want to be in a big city. I always felt there's something about, in fact, um, a colleague of mine, Dawn Lundy Martin, articulated this so brilliantly I was like wow that's exactly what I've been trying to say for months and months which is there's your particular brand of white supremacy and whiteness and you know white supremacy and whiteness is white supremacy is white supremacy but it also isn't it's also very different and it has different textures and it presents itself itself differently obviously white supremacy in France is like (laughs) infamously brutal um, but but I definitely feel like I need a break from like English white supremacy. Quite like I go to the US to get a different kind of white supremacy. I get a I have a break from this white supremacy, and it really just allows me to kind of like breathe for ten minutes, and then you know I mm. I come back or I experience something different, and I think that. I feel really ground down by the white supremacy that I know most intimately. You know, I, I I read all the microaggressions and actually my my black American and, and non-English black friends who are here who, who miss English microaggressions. Um, I'm like, oh, <laughs> that person was being racist. You didn't realize, but that's what that was. And in other places, um, I don't know, you get to kind of be you have to learn a different kind of, you know, form of white supremacy, a different form of code switching. But in some ways it's, it's, sometimes it's the only relief available, I think, is having a break from your particular kind of white supremacy. Yeah. yeah and yeah. as much as I was kind of laughing at that, where you said that originally, that is really sad. Like, that we yeah, it's brutal. have to shop around. <laughs> <laughs> Which white supremacy do we want today? <laughs> I mean, kind of. Kind of, yeah. Like, what, what, what have I got? Like, space for my trolley, you know? Oh my god, I don't want to deal with any supremacy. I want to deal with myself, please. Mm. Yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, yes. And then when I found the island that I can go to and do that, I will let you know. <laughs> um. So I'm going to ask one more question, and I just want to kind of come back a little bit to or two more questions, but the last one's going to be a little one. I just want to come back to whether or not you have any examples of times when institutions have offered care or support in a way that has been effective and has worked. Maybe I can start by giving an example. So recently I had some of my, uh, my work, my work was plagiarised 
by an arts organization mm. and it is an ongoing uh, process that has been really painful emotional exhausting beyond belief um and has required a lot of kind of patience and staying with it and remaining in dialogue with the organization and trying to find ways forwards and the project that was stolen from was supported by an arts organization who are based in London and they have been incredible in supporting me through that conversation with the organization that stole the work they've been in every meeting they've checked in with me constantly they've taken on a huge amount of labor they Mm. have consistently prioritized supporting me asking me for what I want and need taking it on board doing the work thinking about it deeply reflecting being open to being asked to do more or less or do it differently or be called being called in etc They've modeled a kind of institutional care and support that I have never experienced from anywhere else. And and that came down to little things. It came down to, should I email that person? It came down to, you know, I can't be on Zoom right now. I'll send you a WhatsApp voice note. Or actually, I really can't deal with this. And I need you to tell them that they need to give me a bit of time because I'm ill. Or whatever it kind of was, that was, and often, often this kind of institutional support, I think, can be quite ephemeral. But it was quite practical things that were really helpful for me at a time when I didn't have capacity or the experience, actually, to deal with that interaction. That's, I'm really sorry you're going through that with having work plagiarized and having to yeah effort into work and you see someone take it. I think we're moving towards um we're moving towards some kind of re- resolution but I mean the, I guess the point is is that once that this that kind of harm is committed it can't be undone you just have to move towards something that feels like productive um which is also sometimes I think when institutions come into play um so another example would be I'm, I'm making a project at the moment called Acts of Love which is about the fact that Black creatives in my creative community are constantly emailing, writing to and talking to institutions about their lack of care. So, for example, let's say you've commissioned me to write a text and I am going to be in a book with several other artists who are all white, cis artists. And I've said, this is my fee structure and I'm not going to be paid less. And you need to acknowledge the labor that's going to take me to come to this place, come to your offices, you know, wherever they might be, travel on that train, like go through what I might go through to get there, you know, and that email is received from the institution, not as an act of love, i.e. I'm here to keep working with you. Let's remain in dialogue, but is received as an act of hostility, i.e. you're critiquing me, you're being aggressive, you're being the most, you're being a diva, et cetera, et cetera, all the language that we know. So I think so much of this work is like all the work that we do to stay in dialogue and institutions often not being able to meet that dialogue. Mm. Well, yeah, I got, I won this residency to come to Paris for a couple of months and under the performance arts um, new residency with the Irish Cultural Centre here 
And I've just been really grateful for that because it's actually why I badly needed for months, which was just to get away for a while and relax somewhere where nobody really knows me. And they're like, congrats, you've won this residency. It's like, what? Excellent. And here, yeah, here I am. I, I yeah, I'm, I'm pretty grateful for that. I'll be on the Dublin Fringe Festival. Have they put practical... Like, did they put practical measures in place and they were thinking about your transport from um, Dublin to Paris or when you're in terms of your accommodation, how you're getting around? Yeah, so in terms of the institution, you know, uh, my flights and accommodation is paid for, so I don't have to worry about that. Uh, I have to find my own French lessons, yeah. But, um, yeah, I think that was the main thing that, I have roof over my head and a monthly fee to just keep me, just keep me by uh, so that I can just do what I was winning the residencies for, which is to not, to literally just focus on chilling out mm-hmm. and reading, writing, whatever I feel I need to enhance myself mm-hmm. as a performance artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of when I made the application I said in the application that I, and as much as I love it, I love organizing, you know, um, music events and shows like that, you know, and theater shows. But that meant I haven't looked after myself as an artist. Mm-hmm. It has made me feel for a few years a little bit bitter and jealous of fellow artists who, who do focus on that work. And I don't want to be feeling jealous, bitter, but I knew that was coming from organizing things and not feeling like people see me as an artist yet so winning this residency means I don't have to worry about organizing anything like they told me it's a work in progress if you want to show something great and if you want to show it at the end of this year because that was the original deal great if you don't feel like you're ready to yet because you're literally exploring yourself as an up-and-coming artist then we do it for the following year and I'm just like great because again if I did something this year I'm going back to that organizing events organizing mode and I'm like no I just have to get used to chilling out <laughs> and you know yeah. we'll go back to the real world soon but yeah. to have a few months where I'm just you know reading and writing and singing great and I don't have to worry about bills mm. awesome I'm I'm really grateful for that so we're really coming full circle back to flexible deadlines um to economic support to um I mean being human really right like human to human contact that is that is flexible um Ola, I'm going to give you the last word on this um and again no is a valid answer but then I'm going to wrap us up and I want to be respectful of all of our time and our evenings rest yeah I suppose for me the time that like I felt like an institution or like an organization really cared about me was my well-being was this time that like I put out a video about black women's hair and it was it was a prose piece actually that I had written in Irish and yeah I put it out we filmed this I filmed it with this organization called NOS that I mentioned earlier that's in Belfast they're an Irish language magazine and we put it out on YouTube I didn't even know it was originally going on YouTube actually and apparently I had heard that like there was loads of like mean comments and then I went to check it and there was loads of like racist comments on it 
And I was a bit surprised because I didn't even think about that. Like, oh, would there be like troll comments? Like sometimes you expect that when you put something out. And I, I know that's bad to expect that. But like as a black creative, like it tends to happen in Ireland. I'm sure it happens other places. But yeah, so that happened. And I was taken aback. I wasn't like, I wasn't feeling too bad about it just because like, I just don't care about these kinds of people, like these trolls or whatever. Like it was clear that they had organized to get together and just troll this video for whatever reason and started saying all sorts of mad shit not even bothered like to say it again here but basically the organization they kind of acted really quickly and I think they were quite shocked as well so like they blocked the comments and you know they kind of started like interacting with all these trolls online it was on Twitter as well like kind of saying like why, why the hell are you doing this kind of stuff and that kind of thing and it just felt like they really had my back they all called me as well and like emailed as well and then they offered therapy as well to pay for my therapy I think for like one session or so and yeah I just felt really good that like they had my back because sometimes you're not sure in these situations so that was really that really stands out in my head of an organization that really cared as well there was another uh, access ballymon as well who really kind of cared for my art because basically i was looking for funding i didn't know how to put this video documentary idea that i had together and they were like oh you can use our studio you can use our equipment because i was thinking like where can i do it this time you know this video documentary which is called say my adam which is out and I had told them, like, you know, it's about names. It's about, like, people respecting other people's names, even if they don't know how to pronounce it. And, like, they just really liked the idea. They liked that it would be bilingual, so in Irish and English. And, like, they were like, yeah, here's some funding. They didn't actually prepare for this as well, that they would have funding. They were just like, this sounds really good. We're going to try and fund this. And, yeah, I was really happy. Like, I felt like I had a safe space to do that documentary. And everyone was so lovely for the four days that I was there as well. And yeah, I just really enjoyed the experience being there. Congratulations, that's <laughs> wonderful. And I'm really sorry that your amazing video got trolled. Sorry, but not surprised. I think what I always find amazing about these conversations or these examples is on the one hand, I'm listening and I'm like, but isn't that the bare minimum? Like, isn't that just what we're entitled to? Right? Like, shouldn't that just be a given? But of course, I know. I know that it isn't. But I know that it isn't. I mean, that's the whole point of this podcast. I know that it isn't. Um, but I think it is important to remember that in a just world that would be the bare minimum but in the world that we live in and that continues to be a world that we're working towards I suppose and and I, I hope that by kind of documenting these examples and demanding them as not just best practice but base practice um we can we can start to move slowly towards towards that world so on that note, I'm going to wrap us up. I'm going to bring this conversation to a close. I'm so grateful um, for you both for, for joining me here. Thank you so, so much um, for your, your beautifully generous, honest, transparent um, sharing. 
And I will say for uh, anybody who's listening, the first episode um, can be listened to on both the AVA International website and Frame Contemporary Art Finland's website when we were joined by the amazing choreographer and artistic director Sonia Linfers and the curator and doctoral researcher Ki Nomenimi, um, who are amazing artist and curator based in Helsinki. Um, we had a really beautiful conversation so please do go back and listen to that one as well thank you both so much for being here i hope you have a beautiful caring restful pleasurable playful joyous evening Woo thank, thank you, you so much. much good chat with you ola and Anna. you too